Hey Hall, being a 007 here with four rather political films this week, all of them more or less up for some kind of award nomination glory. The first is a documentary called The Final Year, set in the last year of the Obama White House. It's out in the UK last Friday. Also out in the UK last Friday was Steven Spielberg's movie The Post, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, talking about the publication of the Pentagon Papers back in 1971. Third up, we'll be discussing the political satire Downsizing by Alexander Payne, starring Matt Damon, with lots of messages about immigration and environmentalism in it. That's out in the UK tomorrow, Wednesday. And then finally, we'll be discussing the new film from art house director Richard Linklater called Last Flag Flying, which brings us back almost to the themes shown in the post about three friends who are washing, who are Vietnam War vets traveling together to bring home this body of a son who served in Iraq. So again, back to what is the meaning of war and what is the purpose of it? So four big films out this week, lots to discuss. Let's get on with it. And first up, here's a clip from the final year. We're actually doing some things that question certain underlying assumptions of the conduct of American foreign policy. He's been saying for 10 years that American exceptionalism is rooted in what we stand for and how we act, um, and not just in our ability to impose our will on people, in part because it doesn't work. Okay, so that was a clip from the film. It should give you a flavour of the earnestness that imbues it. And it strikes me as deeply ironic that almost a year to the day when Trump took over office, we are faced with this documentary It's called The Final Year, and that's exactly what it is. It's Greg following Obama and a team of his people as they really try and create the legacy of Obama's administration. And I think it's very clear that they believe they're going to be handing over to Hillary Clinton. And there are a set of beliefs that they embody, uh, some of which I share, some of which I don't. But what does impress you is their earnestness their commitment to the concept of public service, that they are putting their lives in service of what they believe are the best interests of the United States, and that that is a very liberal internationalist view. In other words, they believe in engaging with foreign powers and in using America's reputation and history as a democracy and embodying certain idealized values into practice, into using that influence abroad. So it's a film that very much comes from a pro-Obama perspective and I think is as fascinating for what it doesn't say as what it does say. So the film follows a couple of specific people and it's kind of, I guess, sad with the benefit of hindsight regardless of your views of what they're trying to achieve to see how quickly in politics your achievements can be undone. The first of these is Secretary of State John Kerry, who was negotiating the nuclear deal with Iran, which as we know now is is irrelevant. He follows UN Ambassador Samantha Power, and she's basically in Nigeria trying to get the girls kidnapped by, by Boko Haram back. And that's interesting because she totally believes in the civilizing mission of the United Nations. And as we know, that's very different from uh, Donald Trump's views. The film also follows Ben Rhodes, who's the deputy national security advisor. And he was basically trying to do two things. He was trying to reconcile with Cuba 
and keep climate change at the top of the agenda. And as we now know, uh, the US has withdrawn from the Paris Climate Change Accord. So that's done. And then finally, it's meant to be following Susan Rice, who was director of the NSA. And I think she might have been the most fascinating to really get an insight into, because obviously it's a secret world, one of national security. The problem is, is that she basically only gets a couple of scenes and just provides a couple of quite banal sound bites. She doesn't show her personal life as the other people do and comes across as very deliberately, I think, anonymous, which is probably why there wasn't very much usable material. I do somehow wonder why she volunteered for the documentary, given that she wasn't prepared to give much of herself to it. And I do wonder whether the director might have been better to cut her out entirely. That said, I do have a sneaking suspicion, and I've got no foundation for this, that maybe it's that... Susan Rice, coming from the NSA, would have been more of a foreign policy realist with a capital R, a philosophy in opposition to being an internationalist, capital I. And maybe what she was saying might not have jived with certainly the Samantha Power part of the film. And I wonder if that brought editorial conflict or problems. So I think this documentary is fascinating and it's it's insightful as far as it goes. I think it will very much appeal to the people who share the same value set as the people it's it's eulogising effectively. I don't necessarily do that. So I found it more fascinating for what it didn't show. In other words, this is a group of people and an administration in its final year that seems incredibly complacent, incredibly out of touch and in its own Washington bubble. And it exactly tells you what the Trump campaign was fighting against and why people in opposition to Trump were so surprised by his victory. Because there is so little acknowledgement of the juggernaut of the campaign of, oh my goodness, this guy has now won the primaries. You know, he is the candidate. This is who Hillary is going to have to go up against. It's almost like it's too outlandish a concept for people who've dedicated their lives to public service to take seriously. They literally can't compute it and therefore they ignore it. And I'm not trying to blame these three people specifically because I think the same was true of many of us. You know, I remember when he first ran for was running in the primaries thinking it was outlandish, but you have to change as the evidence changes. And I think that watching this movie was therefore bittersweet for me, not necessarily because I regretted the Obama presidency as much as some of his real super fans watching this will, but because it showed me some of my mistakes in that final year and some of the mistakes we all made in underestimating the Trump phenomenon. That's the real tragedy of this for me. So there you have it, The Final Year, a film about three people trying to craft a legacy that was effectively undone by Donald Trump within weeks. It's very sad and very ironic that I think the message of this film is trying to say, these are values that are worthy. And don't be discouraged, don't be disheartened, be inspired by these people, enter public service, do right by your country. And yet the message I took from it, with the benefit of historical hindsight, is how fragile those legacies are. So it's a documentary that I will still recommend. I think it works on many levels. And I think it can work for you, even if you're not a huge fan of Obama. I really would encourage you to see it regardless. Apart from anything, it does show you a little bit of the machinery of government. And I think that's always fascinating and interesting. 
So the final year has a running time of 89 minutes. It's rated 12A for infrequent strong language. It played the London and Toronto Film Festivals last year, and it was released in the US, UK and Ireland last Friday. Okay, so on to the post, the other big release last week. And here's a small clip from the film showing the reaction of the Washington Post journalists when they realise they have under 10 hours to figure out what stories they can get out of this mass of leaked documents they've just been given. It's not the full report, but it's over 4,000 pages of it. Huh. Are these in order? I don't think so. There are no page numbers. Yeah, that's where the top secret stamps were. My source had to cut them off. We're supposed to retire on Friday. <laughs> ben, how are we supposed to comb through 4,000 pages? They're not even loosely organized. The had three months. There's yeah. no way we can possibly He's get right. this right. We got less than eight hours. We could shoot for City, then we'd have ten. Hey, 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 hey. For the last six years, we've been playing catch-up. And now, thanks to the President of the United States, who, by the way, has taken a shit all over the First Amendment, we have the goods. We don't have any competition. There's dozens of stories in here. The Times has barely scratched the surface. We have 10 hours till the deadline, so we dig in. So those were the journalists of the Washington Post trawling through the Pentagon Papers. They actually picked up the story from the New York Times, who had already published the leaked documents condemning American administration's interference in Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. But the New York Times, having published, was under a court restraining order and so couldn't continue until the case went to the Supreme Court. The decision, therefore, before the Washington Post's proprietor, Catherine Graham, played by Meryl Streep, is whether or not to publish. And what's at stake is potentially going to prison. But it's also the future of her cash-strapped company that she's inherited via her husband from her father. The company is about to go under an IPO to raise money from investors on the stock exchange, and she could very well lose the legacy that she has inherited by publishing this damning story of US involvement in Vietnam. So the theme of the film obviously is one of the importance of press freedom in holding corrupt administrations to account. And the filmmakers obviously want to give us an analogy to the modern attack of the mainstream media by the current administration. It gives a very important uh, number of lines to the source of the leak of the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, where he says that a president who rejects criticism of himself as treason is awfully close to a man who thinks of himself as the state, l'état c'est moi, which is something we would associate it with a Renaissance king or a dictator rather than the leader of a democratic country. So obviously there's a timeliness to the film from the issue of press freedom. But the second theme of the film derives from its focus on the role of Kay Graham, the Post's proprietor, whose decision to publish is the one that is at the very centre of the story, a lot of which takes place on the day in which the Post gets the papers up to midnight, which is the publication deadline. She is painted as a woman who is born to be a socialite, still is a socialite, and only went into business because her husband committed suicide and so had to take over the family newspaper. So she's had to learn the job as she goes under a lot of pressure and at a time when business women were a rarity. And actually, if you find this film interesting when you watch it, I would heartily recommend her Pulitzer Prize winning autobiography called Personal History, which really is, as myself, a woman in business, a fascinating picture of what she faced and had to overcome, both in terms of self-confidence and the very real misogyny she faced. And it's interesting to see how much of that still operates today. 
So, of course, this idea of gender equality of women gaining respect as decision makers is also incredibly current, uh, given the politicised times in which we live. And I also think shows us how filmmaking about this era has moved on. If you think of the movie All the President's Men, which takes place almost immediately after The Post in real history, and... That film was made in the 70s, shortly after the events occurred. And it's a fantastic film, but you'll remember that Kay Graham doesn't exist in that film, except on the phone. The real hero of the film is Ben Bradley. So contrast that with a film made in 2017, where Kay Graham is front and centre in that decision to publish. I mean, that is tremendous progress of a kind. So how does the film stack up? On the one hand, I think there's lots to like. It's really well cast. The cast all give very good performances, although I didn't think any of them were particularly Oscar winning if you take away the political uh, resonances that we have today. I very much liked its design. It's all muted browns and light blues, the soft focus lighting, and that indescribably warm-toned 1970s feeling without being a slave to to sort of recreating the costumes. I also like the way in which the camera moved, and this seemed to me something quite new for Spielberg. Sometimes it's handheld, it's always dynamic. He's really trying to give you a sense of the pace and excitement of a newsroom, and the pace and tension of getting the story published on time, and I really love that. I also think he uses the camera in a way that is architectural. And what I mean by that is that he frames his characters within architectural environments to make an emotional point. So, for instance, we often see Kay Graham framed within her house, often at the centre of a frame where there's her living room on one side and the social side of her life on one side and her private office on the other and her kind of caught in the middle of those two worlds. We also get a lot of shots where the camera looms above her as if to mirror the fact that she's often spoken down to by a lot of men. And then the other thing I like that it does, which is very much taken from all the president's men and actually early seasons of Mad Men, is the way in which they place the camera to show the ceilings of newsroom and really give that sense of a very particular authentic environment, but the sense of a tight knit, almost claustrophobic community and a sense of us battling them. I think that works really well. But my pleasures in this film were really offset by the clumsiness of the script. It felt a lot more tell than show. We get endless dialogue telling us how to interpret the action of characters rather than just letting us watch it and come to our own conclusions. Which frankly, given how earnest and conscious of its political context this film is, would not be hard to do anyway. So often we'll get a certain thing happen and we should interpret it in a certain way. But then there's another minor character um, telling us again, after we've come to that conclusion, to reinforce it. So for instance, at the moment when Kay Graham decides to publish, we have Ben Bradley's wife, played by Sarah Paulson, explaining to us just what is at stake for her. And it's so Basil exposition. And this happens again and again. The other thing that I found really jarring and heavy handed was a scene near the end of the film where Kay Graham is leaving the Supreme Court where she and other newspaper proprietors have just received their decision. And she doesn't do the press conference. So they're already making a point about how men will seek to speak for the group and take the spotlight and the women will stand back and not lean in as Cheryl Sandberg would have us do. And as she's walking down the Supreme Court steps, which elsewhere on the steps are a mixed 
crowd. She walks exclusively through a crowd of young women of all different ethnic backgrounds. And I think we're clearly meant to take that as look at the lives of the women that she is inspiring and changing in terms of their opportunity set, which I just found so on the nose. I mean, the importance of Kay Graham. Yes, it's important to see a woman who's a successful businesswoman. Let's not forget, however, that she inherited this. It was not meritocratic. But secondly, the importance of the freedom of the press, this is a wider thing than just a a gender issue or a sex issue. So I just found that a little bit heavy handed and clumsy. Overall, then, I think The Post is an earnest and a very well-made film. I really enjoyed watching it and would encourage you to do so. But it just doesn't trust its audience enough to let them reach their own conclusions. And I just found that very, very trying. By the end, I was just longing for the austerity of the ending of All the President's Men, which doesn't have a big, gushing, emotional John Williams score. It just has a newswire banging out the end of the Nixon regime letter by letter. It's stark, it's depersonalised and it's adult. It's not juvenile, it's not patronising or condescending. So yes, this is a good film. I don't think it's one of the all-time greats. It may well do very well at awards season just because people want to applaud the messages within it rather than the performances or the way in which it's been made. Um, But it's still worth seeing. The Post has a running time of 160 minutes and is rated 12A for strong language and brief battle violence at the very beginning. It was released last year in the USA and is currently on release in the UK and Ireland. Okay, so let's move on from The Post to Downsizing. It's a film by the director Alexander Payne, who's probably known to you for films like Sideways that are very witty, very intelligent, appeal to the sort of middle aged middle classes. And here he's kind of satirising everything that they embody, particularly the American variety. So he's satirising people who have come through the credit crunch, they're living beyond their means, they're loaded with debt, they're obsessed with having a bigger house, with keeping up with their neighbours, with material consumption, and living in a society that's very parochial, that's very much in silos, so you know lots of people who look and feel and think like you and not many others with different life experiences, and particularly in America you're probably not that well travelled and haven't met people from different countries. It's also satirising the idea that as much as we pay lip service to environmental degradation, we don't really adjust our consumption habits to save the environment. It's a film that's very uneven in tone and direction, and it's not clear to me entirely what Matt Damon or Alexander Payne were trying to do with this film. The first third of it starts off as a sort of funnier, lighter version of a Black Mirror episode with a very big concept. So the Matt Damon and Kristen Y characters live in a near future where there's a miniaturization technology. So you can literally shrink yourself down to five or six inches tall. And what this enables you to do is to then move into a tiny, teeny little beautiful luxury village that comes complete with its own golf courses and amenities. It would feel like a very luxurious retirement resort, perhaps. And even though in the real world you're crippled with debt, once you've sold your house and all your belongings and cleared your debt, that tiny, tiny amount of net money that you have left is actually enough to afford you a very expensive and luxurious lifestyle in the much smaller world. Because, of course, your dollars stay real in value, but they're buying, you know, instead of buying a whole bottle of champagne at $50, you'll buy a tiny little thimble amount. 
So it's the dream that rather than having to cut your consumption to fit your budget, you can continue to live like a king and have very little environmental impact on the budget that you currently have. Now, it's no secret to say that for various reasons, Matt Damon ends up taking this trip into downsizing alone without his wife and also without much of the money he thought he was going to get. And this brings us to the second part of the film. So where we leave behind the cool sci-fi concept and all that kind of fun of seeing how Alexander Payne imagines the miniaturization would work. And we go into a kind of social criticism second portion of the film. So Matt Damon, through meeting a character played by Christoph Waltz, and doesn't Christoph Waltz always play the same characters where he's this smooth, charming, debonair man about town? He clues Matt Damon in onto a few things about the black economy in the downsized world and the fact that he smuggles in goods from the real world, or the big world, I should say. It's also through the Christoph Waltz character that Matt Damon gets to meet the Vietnamese cleaner who introduces him to the world of the illegal immigrants who do the cleaning and do all the kind of shitty, crappy jobs that no one else wants to do in the downsized world. And I think what we're meant to do is via Matt Damon is have our own horizons opened up for us by Alexander Payne into realising the shitty conditions in which illegal immigrants live, the poor access to healthcare and how appalling their situation is. Frankly, I found this part of the film really patronising. I don't need Alexander Payne to open my horizons. I'm very politically aware. And if I did want to go to a film with a very funny edited together trailer, this wouldn't be the mechanism by which I'd want to be taught what to think about the world. I also think there are real problems with how Alexander Payne presents the cleaner. She speaks with a very pronounced accent and, you know, I'm a second generation immigrant. Lots of my family have strong accents too. But the way in which she's presented and the the cinema audience reacts. So I watched this at the BFI London Film Festival last October and it felt like the crowd was laughing at her and had been given permission to laugh at her strong accent by the directorial decisions that Alexander Payne made. And I really didn't appreciate that and found it borderline offensive. So anyway, we get the second third of this film, which is very, uh, you know, it's a social explanation of why we should care about immigrants. And then as we move into the final third of this film, we get this very heavy handed treatise on environmental activism. Because Christoph Waltz, the cleaner and Matt Damon all travel by boat to Norway, where they find the scientist who originally invented the miniaturization tech and the community he founded. And it's kind of ironic, but his aim was not to enable rich Americans or kind of indebted Americans to live the life of rich people, but to get back to nature and live a life that had a very soft environmental impact. So that part of the film, again, it's very heavy handed in its politics. I think it's very obvious politics, actually. It's not teaching you anything particularly sophisticated or new or I wouldn't mind it so much. And then it ends with a little bit more Black Mirror type text stuff, philosophy stuff. But my goodness, by then I was so bored. This film has a running time of 135 minutes and you really feel every second of it because it is so unengaging. I didn't care about Matt Damon's character. I didn't care about his enlightenment. I thought it was just very cliched in terms of cinema that that enlightenment came by means of, you know, a pretty young girl who's going to teach this, you know, blundering middle-aged man to sort of have a soul and care about people. I mean, how many times have we seen that on screen? It's also, as I said, borderline offensive. 
So with that, let's move on to our final film of the week out on Friday in the UK, Richard Linklater's Last Flag Flying. It's his latest film. Uh, he's famous for things like the Before Sunrise trilogy and more recently Boyhood, which won a bunch of Oscars. The film's based on a novel by Daniel Ponixan. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. And those of you who are real deep cut art house movie fans may remember that this guy also wrote an earlier novel set in the Vietnam Wars, which became the Hal Ashby film, The Last Detail. And this film is kind of a sequel to that and picks up the same three characters decades later when one of their own sons is also serving in a war, this time Iraq. But for whatever reason, it doesn't have the original actors now aged. It, it changes the names of the characters too, but they're very recognisable in their tropes. So Last Flag Flying is essentially the story about three old friends and Vietnam vets who have fallen out of touch, but they reconnect when one of their sons is killed in Iraq. The father, Doc, is played by Steve Carell, and it's a performance of really moving, quiet grief. He starts off incredibly quiet, actually. It's often hard to hear him mumble his lines, but then he, he kind of amplifies as he gets more confidence and the camaraderie between the three friends builds. So he's supported on the one hand by the cynical bartender Sal, who's played by Brian Cranston, just chewing up the scenery and being a big character. And a former tearaway turned reverend Richard Muller, played by Lawrence Fishburne. And there's some fun to be had with Homeland Security and that surname and the fact that he's black later on in the movie. What comedy there is in the film, and it does have its really funny moments, uh, stems a little bit from the battle of wits between the newly reformed reverend and the still heavy drinking Sal, but also just about what it's like to be men who are now getting old, reminiscing about when they could piss for hours and get an erection and all the kind of fun and games they had in Vietnam. And I think that's the most relatable part of the film, perhaps. But that contrasts sometimes in a jarring way between you know, the fun and the bonding and kind of the road trip element of the movie and what is very deep, profound and tragic content, which is essentially a father grieving for his son and questioning what his own service in war meant, what a post 9-11 America means, politicians who send people off to war with perhaps no aim. And it's interesting in a sense to watch this just um, in the same day as seeing the post, because both are dealing with America's aims and success in Vietnam or lack thereof and then sort of carrying that through line into the Gulf Wars in Iraq which are also perhaps ideologically compromised wars which have seen many men and sons and brothers killed and leave the families asking why and what for. So that's a very profound, tricky, sophisticated, nuanced topic matter to be then thrust against the comedy of, hey, here's an old dude who's never had a mobile phone before and he doesn't realise you have caller ID. Um, that just felt to be rather jarring. And in fact, when you look at the, the way in which the film's made, it's definitely erring towards the sombre. Certainly in the way it's shot, it's very dull and muted in its colour scheme. Um, the settings are all rather dingy and homely. So you get wintry, snowy railway stations, run-down motel rooms and unfashionable bars. And it really is about three men who've been used up and chewed up by life, especially the Steve Carell character. He's lost his wife, his son, his job. He's living in a small town. And it's kind of like, is this what life is about and what it led us to? And is there any way in which we can still find some honour in that and some respect for the choices that we made? 
I have to say that I really wanted to like this movie. I'm a big fan of Richard Linklater, but I did find it a bit of a tedious watch, especially in its first section. It, it takes a long time to get Frodo out of the Shire. Little deep cut joke there for Tolkien fans. I did also find it jarring in tone, as I've said. And in a sense, the three characters, maybe with the exception of Steve Carell, who does give a very nuanced performance, but the other two I did find slightly caricatured. I mean, they're less people than they are character tropes that are set up to uh, rub each other up the wrong, wrong way and then show a bit of a buddy bromance developing. There's one moving scene where the three of them go to visit the mother of one of their colleagues, comrades who, who fell in Vietnam. That was genuinely moving. But I felt that the final scene, which is at the funeral of the son, was undercut a little bit. And I don't want to describe it too much because I don't want to spoil the ending. But it just felt that everything was a little bit too convenient in its compromise and just, I don't know, too neat and unearned. And I think, in a sense, undermined the deliberate messiness and bagginess and probing of the earlier parts of the film. So ultimately, I would say that Last Flag Flying was not a good viewing experience for me. And I'm not sure that I'd really recommend it. Certainly not at the cinema, maybe on DVD, but it is a pretty slow watch, I have to say. And that's ultimately very disappointing because I think Linklater is a better director than this film allows him to be. And I just wonder if maybe the themes were too diffuse and it needed a narrower focus. Last Flag Flying has a running time of 125 minutes and is rated R in the USA and 15 in the UK for strong language and sex references. The movie played the New York and London Film Festivals last year and was released also in the USA and Canada last year. It's currently on release in a bunch of European territories and opens in the UK and Ireland on Friday. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 